Well, good morning, everybody. We have so far dodged the pending snowstorm. I'm glad. I, I know earlier in the week I was worried because they're predicting it to hit this morning, and supposedly it's supposed to hit later on this afternoon or this evening. So I'm glad everybody can meet. Um, my name is Steve Green. Again, I'm going to introduce myself because I don't know how many people were here last week and how many weren't. Um, but I'm not normally here. I'm not the normal teacher. It's usually Mike or one of the elders. Um, but I was a part of Lion and Lamb Church uh, up until last June, and just in short, I am now with my wife. I'm attending Covenant Theological Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri, um, and we are also expecting our first child in May, um, and we are oh so excited about that. So um, thank you guys as, as the body. Thank you for allowing me to speak. I didn't get really, really a chance to say that last week, but it means a lot, and I just wanted to say thank you, and for those um, that are listening to me for, for the first time, thanks just for putting up with me. So um, with that being said, uh, being in St. Louis, Grace and I had to do the business of, of church shopping, and we've, we finally landed at this church. It's a great community called Old Orchard Presbyterian. Um, a lot of Francis Schaeffer disciples are there, and a couple guys from the faculty are there, and, and we're going through the process of becoming new members. And um, in, in preparation of becoming a new member, we're going to take this class at the beginning of, or end of January, um, and the, the pastor sent out this email, and in the email, he, he, he cited this article that's in the St. Louis Dispatch, and when I googled the name of this article, you can actually find it, it's, I think it was printed just nationally, um, but it's called Losing Religion, Not Faith, and what this article is doing is it's spotlighting the, uh, ath- the, the former atheistic or atheist uh, novelist, gothic novelist, Anne Rice, and, and if you guys remember about 10 years ago, Anne Rice um, came to Christianity and, and Christianity warmly embraced her, especially uh, book distributors, because she was um, uh, uh, writing a few pieces on, regarding Christianity, I think a couple novels, I'm not sure the names. Um, and so the, she was warmly received, but in this article, it talked about in July, which she, she said that she was walking away from Christianity. But she wanted to clarify, while she was walking away from Christianity in the church, she wasn't walking away from Christ. It's interesting. Let me give you a direct quote from her. It says, For those who care, and I understand if you don't, today I quit being a Christian. I'm out. I remain committed to Christ as always, but not to being Christian or to being part of Christianity. It is simply impossible for me to belong to this quarrelsome, hostile, disputatious, and deservedly infamous group. For ten years I've tried. I've failed. I'm an outsider. My conscience will allow nothing else. You know, this discontent for, for the organized religion is, is kind of growing amongst the society. Uh, a few years back in 2008, Trinity College released a study where they focused on a group of people called the non-religious. And what they showed is from 1990 to 2008, this, this group of, of non-religious people had actually grown um, from 8.2% to almost doubling in size to 15%. But while the studies showed that people were becoming more and more non-religious and, and becoming more and more less likely to attend church full-time, that the belief in a God had not changed. And, and for Rice, she even gives the reason for her own departure. She says that for her, she couldn't reconcile Christ with his followers. And this is a common problem that, that a lot of people have when faced against the church is, is this discontent or discomfort with organized religion. And, and I would imagine... Um, we're all different. We all have different stories here in, in these seats today, but we've all have maybe been up against church conflict or 
uh, not buying into a church mission or seeing moral failure of the leadership of the church, whatever reason it is, our stories are so different, but we all have probably seen this disunifying um, bond in some situations of church. However, while there's this growing trend in non-religion and sort of this privatization of the faith, I don't believe that that's the biblical model presented in Scripture. In fact, I think it rubs against that model. Um, The model we find in Scripture and today in Colossians is that to be in Christ or in union with Christ isn't just a personal experience that begins and ends with us as an individual. Rather, it's this, that God has united Christ with his people, and that we should live a life united with each other. In fact, that is the burden of today's passage when we look at the second part of our in Christ life. It's this, since God's chosen people are united with Christ, we must live a life unified or united with each other. Um, If you would, just bow your heads and pray with me. Father God, we thank you for this day. It's cold, it's cloudy, it kind of at times can bring down our spirits, Lord, but I just, I pray that we would enjoy warm fellowship with each other. Lord, thank you for this body. Thank you for these people that you have, you have brought here today to worship together and to hear the good news, to hear the words of Scripture. Lord, may it sink deep down inside our hearts, Lord, and that we would be challenged and we would grow accordingly. Father, would you just use this time for enrichment? And more importantly, Lord, would you use this time to refresh our souls? Let us take big drinks of water. It's in Jesus' name, amen. If you would, open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. Well, we do that. I need to apologize for last week. I, one of the things I love when I give sermons is, is that chance to give background behind the reason and purpose why a book was being written. I, I never usually fail to do that, and, and I did last week. I went back and listened to the sermon just to see what I had said and what I'd missed and, and whatnot, and I had noticed that I left that important piece out. So while you're turning, I just want to say that Colossians is written to the church in Colos. This, this area is a, a region in Turkey, kind of central Turkey. If you've ever been there, it's in the kind of the central Cappadocian region. Um, and Colossians was actually written not just for the church in Colos, but also a group of churches. Um, that's mentioned at the end of Colossians when it says that what you're to do with this letter is to distribute it amongst these other churches. Now, with Colossians, and, and like many churches, Um, Paul wasn't the first one there. It was probably a guy named Epaphras. And Epaphras was mentioned both at the beginning of the chapter in chapter 1 and then also in chapter 4. And and he had came and he presented the gospel and now we see that there's this church of of people believing in Christ. And and so often was the the trend in early church history. Um, False teachers had begun to conspire or to weave themselves into the church. And so Paul is writing this letter first and foremost to to establish the fact that Epaphras has indeed given them the true gospel. So like what we were talking about last week, that they didn't need to worry about these household idols that they are worshiping and these pagan deities, or even for some to continue practicing a sense of Jewish, Jewishness that was sort of legalizing or bonding them old, back to the old covenant, rather that he was emphasizing the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. On top of that, Colossians is also written to sort of emphasize what we've been talking about and what we're talking about this week, that we are in Christ. Last week we talked about how our in Christ life 
means that we are, as individuals, united with Christ. But if we stop there, we miss, we miss the point that this, this language of being in Christ doesn't stop with us, but it's also talking about a community of believers. In fact, just looking, if you have your Bibles, at, at verse 3 in chapter, chapter 3, it says, and this is picking up on that theme of in Christ, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Later in this passage, Paul says, now what I want you to do because of this new nature that you have received, I want you to begin what's called stripping or putting off of the old man. And he kind of lists those, those attributes that you're supposed to now put off or strip. And then he goes on in verse 12, and he says this, and this is where we're going to be parked at for today. It says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves, or as some translations might say, put on with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace, and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the God, the Father through him. Amen. Um, what I want to say is this, is that this, this, this is going to be touching on the highlights of this passage. It's not exhaustive, kind of line by line explaining every single thing, but more touching on some of the big themes, especially as it relates to community. For those that weren't here at Sunday school, the church spent some time talking not only about its future here in this building, but also, which I love, is, is the mission of God. What is the mission that God has given this church both in relation to each other and then also into the community of Topeka, Kansas, but ultimately in the world. And so I want to be highlighting this idea of, of community um, in this passage. And the first point I want to make is this, is that since God's chosen people are united with Christ, we must bear and forgive each other. Now, if you, if you saw that, that, that clothing yourself, that putting on, um, Paul is using what's considered an, an, an imperative verb, and simply that just means that it's an exhortation or a command. And it's kind of like if, if you're a parent, you know um, what this is like. When you tell your kids, you say, Johnny, go put your shirt on. I don't know. I don't know why shirt or whatever. But go put, put your clothes on. Get ready for school. When you say that, you're not saying it with the sense of as if it's an option. There's the expectation that, you're going to, that your child is going to put on its clothes. And the same thing or the same idea is being brought out when, when Paul uses this imperative, when he says, put on um, <clears throat> kindness, ca- compassion, humility, gentleness, and patience. But then he says, bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has against, um, an grievance against someone. So why then does Paul command the church to perf- practice forgiveness and bear with one another? First, I'd like to point, because we ourselves have been graciously forgiven. Uh, forgiveness is a quality that is interlocked with the gospel message and very, very much so the attribute of God himself. It says in Psalm 145.8, the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. When responding to the life in Christ, the author of Hebrews tells us, quoting the prophet Jeremiah, he will forgive us our unrighteousness and remember our sins no more. Those in Christ have been forgiven, 
And it's a type of forgiveness that, God ex- that we experience through God that he doesn't remember the sins that we've committed. He forgets. And not in that sort of, you know, there's some anthropomorphic, there's some language there that's, that's tricky, um, but in the sense that he, they're wanting to, to draw out there is that he has forgot our sins, both what we have done in the past and what we will do in the future. And so Paul is trying to capture this, this amazing sense of, of forgiveness that God has poured out on us. And so we that are in Christ are supposed to forgive each other. And thinking about it in the sense of community, of what it means to be in Christ with each other, why is this so important? Because forgiveness encourages unity. As one of my commentaries points out that the type of forgiveness Paul is speaking of is a type of forgiveness that involves putting up with other members of the congregation. The inability to forgive one another in church life is absolutely toxic. Usually, denominations and and churches that are unable to reconcile differences with one another are usually the most on the steepest decline. Take, for example, the Anglican Church or the Episcopal Church. There has been this deep rift, and for obvious reasons, for obvious reasons, but to get a sense, and that might be a bad analogy, to get a sense that unable to forgive and to make amends for for grievances towards each other can really um, put a wedge with each other or in with each other. Um, for Lion and Lamb to succeed and continue as a rich community of faith, we have to be willing to forgive. And, and when I say that, I don't mean a type of forgiveness that just simply play, pays lip service. When we say that we forgive each other and when you've been wronged or if you wronged somebody else and you go to your brother or you go to your sister, I'm not talking about just saying you're forgiven, but acting like in a way that encourages unity. And what I mean by this is that we treat that relationship as if it was treated or, or we respond in a way that it was like before the grievance was committed. And here's a great example of this. Um, I have a friend uh, that um, we got in a fight over the summer and it was, a, it, it, it was a horrible fight. And it shouldn't have happened, but it did. And there, went this, there was this period of time that we didn't talk to each other and it was really, it, was, it, it just hurt. But you know what? Eventually we came together, we forgave each other. And, and once we forgave each other, there was a sense of, okay, what's, what's our relationship going to look like now that we've forgiven each other? Because we hadn't seen each other. And what I loved about it is that once we have forgiven each other, we, we restored fellowship and we have acted in a way as if this thing had never happened, that this argument had never taken place. And that's the type of forgiveness that's being talked about here, is a type of forgiveness that can exist in a community of believers where we don't hold the wrongs of, of the other person against that person, but we restore the fellowship and act as if what they had done had never happened. Now, I know that there's, there's limitations to that and there's a sense of wanting to protect yourself, but, but just take that for what it is. <clears throat> I want to I say this, that, that forgiveness encourages unity, but moving on to the second point I want to make is that since God's chosen people are united with Christ, we must love and live in peace with each other. Moving forward in the verse, in verse 14, Paul tells the church, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. If forgiveness is the flavor of the gospel, it's love and peace that are its, are its main ingredients. How then do we live and love in peace in, with each other? First, by oozing with love for one another. John, uh, 1 John 4, 8 states that God is love. 
This is a love that's not in a fuzzy sense, the, the kind of ways that we see it in, uh, kind of explained in like bumper sticker theology, right? When we see God as love or on the big bill for, billboards. But it's a, the, the type of love that's being talked about is this agape love, this brotherly love, this, this when we say that God is love, it's, it's, it's this righteous, holy, self-sacrificing sense. So when Paul tells the people of Colossians to put on love above anything else, it's that our beings, that all of our motivations as we respond to each other in community should be with a deep sense of love for one another. Trying to think about how I can apply this in a practical sense, um, my, my mind immediately went to actually the elders and deacons here at the church. A while back, um, we, we got together. I, I wasn't on the leadership team, but I was allowed to sit in, and it was a great experience. And, and they were going over their policy for marriage, remarriage, and leadership in the church. Now, this is a hot-button issue, right? I mean, it, it, can, it can rouse some tempers and some opinions pretty fast. But it was, it was I don't know, a year of, of talking about this, but the amount of love and compassion that these men had for each other, willing to say, you know, I don't know if I agree 100% with that one opinion, but there's enough, enough in common for me to unify myself with these other men whom I love and who I'm doing ministry together was one of the best experiences that me, myself, could see. See, we, we, we all come from different backgrounds, and I've told some people this before. The thing that I love about church is this, and what I love about the body of Christ is there's a lot of you here that I wouldn't hang out with or spend time with if it wasn't for the body of Christ. Okay? And, and, and I say that knowing that you probably wouldn't want to hang out with me. Okay? I, I'm the first one to say that. There's a small group of people that would want to hang out with Steve Green, and I understand that. But you know what unites us is the love for each other and for Christ and the bride, his church. That is what love is in this body, and that's what it's meant to be oozing with love. Another elder had once told me this, that he knew, that he was convinced that if something was to happen to him, he was confident that this church and the leadership would take care of his wife and his family. That's, that's love. That's oozing with love for one another. And when we talk about how then do I fashion my heart so that I'm loving one another in this church and in this community, the biggest thing is you need to be spending time with each other. This is a great plug for small groups. They didn't ask me to plug this. It just is, all right? It's a, it's a plug for prayer groups, small groups, or whatever. You can't love something without interacting with it. So if you're not loving a community, if you're not loving the body of Christ, chances are at some level you aren't interacting with it. And so what I would encourage you to do is if you're looking for a place to be plugged into, if you're looking for a way to get knitted in, I, I pray that you would find a small group. There's lots of them. There's some that are about ready to start up. Find a prayer group. Go out to lunch with each other. Have each other over for dinner. If you have families, spend time together as families playing together. But in order to love each other in the sense that I think that Paul is talking about, you have to be willing to spend time together. That's, that's that, that oozing, I think, that's the beginning of oozing with love that, that Paul is ad- admonishing these people to, to do by putting on love. Paul um, then, um, excuse me, the, sub, the other point that I wanted to make is that Paul commands them to live in peace with one another. And this, this exhortation that Paul makes is common um, in most endings of his letter, I think in 2 Corinthians, um, but also in 1 Thessalonians, where he's exhorting them to, to live in peace with one another. And F.F. F. Bruce, 
A New Testament scholar says this about this passage. In a healthy body, harmony prevails amongst the various parts. Christians have been reconciled to God, enjoying peace with him through Christ, should naturally live at peace with one another. Strife inevitably results when men and women are out of touch with him who is the one source of true peace. But there is no reason why those who have received the peace with Christ established by, the, by his death on the cross should have any other than peaceful relations among themselves. Paul tells us um, to allow peace to rule in our hearts. Let me ask you this. Are you at peace with yourself and then with others? You know, thinking about, as I remember, you know, first is if it, it, the practice forgiveness. Not only do you have to forgive others, and so on your end as far as practically thinking of ways that you, you know, areas that you may need to ask for forgiveness, but also forgiving others. But also the question now is, do you live at peace with yourself and with others? These, these ideas are connected. See, for non-Christians, I, I think that this um, is a big, big thing that keeps so many of them from coming to church, is that they see the way that, that people are, are not unified with each other, that, that there's, this, there's fighting. When I've talked to friends who aren't Christians, they, they say the biggest, the biggest thing that I have against Christianity is that they're always fighting. And I can't remember reading a statistic about how many denominations there were, but they're in the thousands. And, and so this idea of living in peace is so central to the gospel message. And, and bear with me here. This is the way that I think we can practically practice peace in our lives and in our hearts as I ask you the question, are you at peace with yourselves? I think first and foremost is a topic that's not, as Mike would say, sexy, but it's true, is that we need to learn to submit both to the, the, the authority and challenges of Scripture, but as parent, or as, excuse me, as children, better make that distinguish pretty clear, as children submitting to your parents, as wives submitting to your husbands, and most importantly, as a people of God submitting to the deacons and elders of the local church body. See, this, 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 this self sort of focus, sort of I can do whatever I want, and if anybody's going to tell me different, I'm just going to go on to the other church, has, has really plagued this, this, this church that we see in America. And I think that when Paul talks about ruling your hearts with peace and allowing peace to, to rule your hearts is what he's saying here is that, that you would submit yourselves to each other despite rubbing each other the wrong way, but also a sense of trusting those that God has appointed to lead this church. From my experience in ministry, and I've been doing ministry for 10 years, roughly, off and on, is that um, the people that are most unlikely to stay plugged into a church community and those that are usually the most unruly and unpeaceful people in a church are the ones least connected and the ones most looking for controversy in a church body. And the reason why I say that is because I was that guy, all right? I'm, put, I'm, put, I'm pointing myself out in, in, um, in college. I thought, because I went to a small private college, that I knew everything there was about Christianity. I thought I knew everything there was about ministry. And if anybody had anything else to say, well, you were just wrong. And I led the most pathetic, most feeble Christian walk I think I, I could have ever, ever lived. I was lonely. I was miserable. It was horrible. And as soon as anybody challenged me, I just told them, you know, what I thought, and I just went the other way, and I didn't care, because here I was, this young little radical, more like a rascal, that just told people exactly what I thought. I, I had such an unsubmissive heart and such an unruly heart, and when we want to practice peace with one another, I think what Paul is, is saying 
or maybe implying is that we're willing to submit to the demands and the calling of the community, which is usually um, done and expressed through the deacons and the elders. Submission allows peace to rule in our hearts. For some of you, this isn't a problem. My wife, Grace, is just, well, and you'd probably say otherwise, and, right? She, she's strong-willed, but she is naturally more, you know, more submissive. That is part of her nature. And obedience isn't a problem with her. But for others, there is a problem. There is a problem with that. And, and so I'm not speaking to the whole body here, but I am speaking to, to certain individuals that if you're unruly, if you have a tendency to, to sort of check in and check out as soon as something is said that rubs you the wrong way, that I would challenge you to submit yourselves to a church, whether it's Lion and Lamb or where else, I don't know, I don't, I don't necessarily care, but that you would, you would find a place that you feel called and then submit to the mission that they are stating that they, want to, that they want to achieve. Submission allows peace to rule our hearts. And finally, as we discuss the significance of our, uh, of our life in Christ and, and life in relationship with each other, it's this, the main point I want to make is since God's chosen people are united with Christ, let the message of Christ dwell deep, deep within you. Finally, above all things, Paul concludes in verse 16, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing um, one another in all wisdom, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in, in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed and everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now there's a slight debate of what this in you means. Um, I think it, it, it can mean both. Um, there's not a consensus of what, what he's getting to, if it's a personal in you or if it's a corporate in you. But for the, the sake of this sermon, I would like to assume that it's a communal in you. And so um, one way that we can let the message of Christ dwell as a community deep, deep within us is by worshiping Christ together. Now, Paul immediately follows the exhortation to let the word of Christ dwell uh, and then automatically starts listing out some, some common practices should that, that should characterize the church. But I don't want to focus on those practices itself because, I mean, that's something that we do as a church and that's usually mostly accepted in, in most churches. But rather, I want to talk about this topic of just attending church because you can't do these things. You can't admonish one another. You can't sing songs. You can't do all these practices if you're, if you're not coming to church. And so a, a question I want to ask is, do you love the church? Students, um, there's some of you here, do you simply love, or do you simply come here because your parents tell you to? I know that there's an answer for some of you is yes. Or maybe spouses, are you here only for the sole reason because your, your wife or husband dearly wants you here and that's, you're just doing it to please them? It's my conviction following the guidance of Scripture that you can't have a true and vital and healthy dynamic relationship with Christ if you are not fellowshipping and uniting yourself with other members in regular worship with the body of Christ. Now, some of you are here, you're just visiting, you're coming to check things out at Lion the Lamb, and, you know, I'm, I'm biased, so I'm going to say you should probably end up here, and I don't even go here, I live in St. Louis, but that you should end up here. But here's the thing, and I think I'm, I'm safe, on safe uh, ground to say this. No matter where you end up, just end up somewhere. End up somewhere. Whether you're here just visiting for the first time or whatever, the point of, that Paul is wanting to make is that you need to be meeting with each other. Now this is going to uh, rub against this concept of individualistic spiritual growth 
which so many people in, in society today think that it, it's possible, but, but there is this, this collective calling that kind of patterns itself after the Old Testament of, of, of worshiping together and serving out a mission together as a church body. If you really want uh, the words and message of Christ to dwell, dwe- dwell deep, deep inside of you, then you will be partaking in the active process of fulfilling out those very words. Now, this brings me up to kind of touchy waters, um, and, and Mike, I'm going to be a fresh voice and an often hobby horse for you. I don't mean to call you out on, on this, but I think Mike would appreciate this. Mike has often said, if you haven't been here th- that long, he's made this statement pretty boldly that he believes that Satan is in youth sports. Am I saying that right, Mike? Yeah. Firm conviction. And you know what? I hold to that conviction. I truly believe that Satan is behind youth sports and youth activities. And here's why. And here's, hopefully, if, if, if I'm, I'm, I'm quoting Mike's opinion right, and this is my own personal opinion, is it's just not youth sports. It's this mentality of youth sports that's presented today in society that, that sort of minimizes the role of church in life so that sports become priority over a child's heart and, and practices more so than corporate worship with the very bride of Christ. And this doesn't apply itself just to sports and youth sports. This applies itself to ballet or 4-H club or uh, late night video game romps in which the kids are always out spending the night on Saturday nights, whatever. But part of the reason why so many people don't love church is because they were never shaped, their hearts were never shaped to appreciate it. And parents, when you set a pattern of constantly allowing sports or activities outside the church to take precedent over their lives, they see that as that's the most important thing that they should be doing. And so no wonder the church is in decline at some level because we haven't made it a priority. And so if you want to love church as a parent, you can foster and shape and train a child's heart to love the church by making it the capstone of the week. Grace and I always talk about like when, when our baby comes, how we want to really build up church because we both love, we love worshiping with, with the family of God. And so Sundays became, become this, this enjoyable experience for, for our family now and when we have kids. And I would encourage and exhort parents to do the same. Don't minimize church in your homes so that there is nothing to look forward to. Last, um, you can let the words of Christ dwell deep within you by partaking in his work and living out his message. Part of, of allowing this, this, the words of Christ to dwell amongst us in union with Christ is by living out the gospel, the very gospel itself. I, I know that the leadership, again, has talked about um, how they want to become more intentional with each other. And, and intentional living, and, and that we want to be intentional as a community. And part of that intentional community was, uh, if you were in Sunday school, filling out a spiritual gift inventory. And hopefully, if you, if you have done that, you saw what your spiritual gifts are. And if you, I'm assuming that if you'd like to know what your spiritual gifts are and haven't taken that, please see one of the leaders. And I'm sure they would love to hand that information to you because they want to see everybody plugged in. But taking those inventories are helpful because it shows you in the ways that which you are gifted that God, if you know Christ, has gifted you with the specific gift to build up and exhort the body of Christ for his glory. You 
each one of you individually have been given a unique gift by the very creator of all the universe, universe with the sole purpose of building up and exhorting the body of Christ. So why, why do we sit on the sidelines? Why do, we, why do we just check in the church on Sundays for a couple hours and then go out living our lives as if nothing transformational has happened? I believe that many people feel unfulfilled in church because they are not partaking in the mission of God that he has placed before the community of believers here at Lion and Lamb or in other churches around the world. But more importantly, I don't want you guys to fall into this, into this mentality of, of thinking church is just another goods and services in which you consume and so you come here and you're checking the church out hoping that they have the right youth program or Sunday school program or small group or whatever so that you can just be a consumer Christianity just like you would consume any other good or service. Rather that, that you would want to build up and that you would want to partake in the mission of God at this church. If you want the message of Christ to dwell deep within you, you have to come of a place of accepting and partaking in that message as a community of believers. <clears throat> I know Chris, uh, Christmas was a few weeks ago, um, and so I'm a little dated by, by saying this, but there's a movie that I love, and I think there's a handful of others that love this. It's called It's a Wonderful Life. Um, if you haven't seen it, it's, it's well worth checking out. Um, it's one of my favorite all time and it's not so over-the-top Christmassy theme that you can watch it kind of outside of the holiday season and really appreciate the film. But if you haven't seen it, it's a great movie, and it's simply about a guy named George Bailey, and it begins with these angels that are in, in, in some distant galaxy watching down um, you know, the life of George Bailey starting out in childhood, and it shows his life kind of evolving and growing and his interactions, and, and he's this president of a loan company, and, and the something happens where the money is, is sort of mishandled and, and so they're trying to find out what, what happened to the money and he realizes that it's gone and that he's in financial ruin and so his only response to this is to try and commit suicide but as he's about ready to commit suicide his guardian angel Clarence comes down and there's this interaction with him and, and as they're talking about this George says, I wish it'd probably be better if I never had been born and so immediately or Clarence grants this, this wish and, and there's this alternate universe or reality in which George Bailey had never been born. And in it, what we see is he's going through uh, the community. He's seeing how the world or this community is so different. It's no longer Bedford Falls. It's the now labored Potterville. And, and it, what used to be this peaceful, lovely community is now a place of, of gambling and kind of this, you get the sense of debauchery and, and people that were alive at one point are now dead. And, and, and you really get this understanding that it was because of George Bailey, this one person that decided to interact with this community, that they were, they were in this this, this well-kept place. And, and there's a lot of themes that are running throughout this, this story, but the thing that I love the most about it is that here's a guy named George Bailey who constantly looks for a way to get out of Bedford Falls. But for one reason or the other, he feels called to a community and he obeys that calling that God has placed on their lives and we see what life looks like both with and without him obeying that calling that, that's been placed. And that, to me, is what it means to be united with Christ in a community. You, each one of you, have a real call, a real place in a community of Christ, either here at this church or wherever else. And you are more important than you realize. 
There are people right now that need to know the gospel. There are people right now that need to be served or need to be taught or whatever. And, 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 and we tend to think, oh, if I wasn't partaking in fellowship, then nothing really would happen. Don't minimize your role in the body of Christ. <clears throat> I believe um, that the Old Testament community and the use of the law, at least one of the uses of the law, was to not only show uh, where our sins were and how far we've fallen short from God, but I also believe that God had originally intended that the law would be established so people would come and, and, and as they passed through Israel, they would see these people of God worshiping him and they would see the law and see how much God graciously cares for his people. And now that the, the, the Old Testament law has been done away with and now we have the gospel and we have Christ, I believe that, that instead of the law, it's the gospel that people would, would see the way when they come and visit this church and other churches, the way in which we carry out the gospel mission for, for this world, that they, would, that they would yearn and they would long to know God through the way that we interact with each other, through forgiving one another through loving and being at peace with each other and by, by enjoying fellowship with each other. For, for some of you, you, you guys, for some of you here, you don't know Christ. You, you, you say, you know, I'm not plugged into anything. I'm just, you know, I'm just here because I was invited or whatever. You know, you're not here for, um, by accident. You're not here without a purpose. God has before, this is my belief, the foundations of the world brought you to this place at this church at this time to hear the gospel of Christ and your heart yearns for satisfaction and it yearns for belonging. And I can only tell you this, that you will never truly be satisfied, that you will never find your deepest longing satisfied until you have embraced a relationship with Christ. And, and so when I'm using all this communal language of talking about community, you say, Steve, I don't have that. I don't have that. It doesn't relate to me. But we stand here as a church body and, we, and God stands there with open arms waiting for you to come to know him fully. I would just commend you to accept Christ and accept that relationship. Church is messy. It, it, there's all kinds of people. There's a risk to it, but the payoff is huge. And for those of you that are here that, that haven't been actively engaging in, in the work of God that haven't been loving each other the way you should or to let peace rule in your hearts or practice forgiveness, I ask you now, let this be a time in which you feel brought up or called up to start practicing these things. See, every church has its own opinion and, and one thing I appreciate about this meeting today and Sunday school is that there's tons of books and there's tons of thoughts on how churches should grow and how churches should function and, and, and really, what I've come to find is the more and more I've read is that there is not one systematized approach to church growth. And I'm reading this really interesting book called Evangelism in the Early Church. And the guy, that, what he's, he's, he's pointing out is that what was so transformational about the community of the early church is that they lived lives transformed, where at one point they were, they were old, uh, their old nature was there. They were corrupt. There was guys like, like Paul or Saul, as he was named before. And now because the gospel of Christ has come into their lives, they are living transformed lives. And also, just as important as living in transformed lives, they were living in community with each other, so contrary to what that, which, that which was the norm of the time. And so while we, we, we look and we try to figure out what our call is and how we can grow as a body of Christ, you know, there's all these different ideas of how that can happen. But most importantly, 
If you want to grow as a church body, you will love each other. You will be at peace with one another. You will be willing to forgive when it's really hard to forgive that person. And you will love meeting and working together as a body of Christ. The church isn't perfect as of right now. One day, when, we're, when, we, we, when the restoration of all things come and we receive our glorified bodies, it will be perfect then, and it will be amazing. But until that day comes, the church isn't per- perfect, and it has its dysfunctions. But I, I challenge you to look over that, to know that God has called you here for a reason, to partake in a life that is amazing. Don't sit on the sidelines. If you feel incomplete, if you feel unfulfilled, perhaps the reason why is because you have sat on the sidelines. And if you, if you don't know Christ, perhaps your, your, deepest longing, your, your deepest longing is to know Christ. Serve the church and each other, all for the glory of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. Again, I thank you for these people. Lord, I don't know, I, I barely know half of them, but I can tell you this in, in absolute assurance, I do love them. And, and I'm not a perfect person, and we are not perfect people, Lord, but honestly, the Bible is filled with imperfect people that despite their imperfections, we are still used for your glory. And so, Father, when, I think, when we think about this, what it, this idea of what it means to be united with Christ, to be in Christ, that we wouldn't just focus it in on ourselves, but also that we would focus it in community with each other. Lord, would, you, would your Holy Spirit be heavy on our hearts? Lord, would you convict us? In areas that we need to forgive, Lord, I ask that we would seek to forgive each other but that also that we would stop living in the past and live in the current reality, that we ourselves have been greatly forgiven. Lord, let love and peace rule in our hearts. May we practice peace and practice love with one another, both at home and in our lives outside. And most importantly, Lord, that we would glorify you, that we would be an example of the gospel. Lord, that, that people would wonder at the great care that you have for humanity by the way we interact with each other. Lord, we love you and we thank you. Prepare our hearts for worship. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.